Okay, uh, good evening once again and welcome back once again for the third session of Medical Innovation 2009. Uh, can I just say really congratulations to all of you for such a fantastic turnout despite the adverse weather conditions tonight. So thank you very much for making such a great effort. Um, I waste no time. Um, let me introduce please for this evening our chair. Um, we're very privileged to have Dr. Mark Taylor with us this evening who's a shining light in all spheres of innovation, technology transfer, and translational research. Mark, after completing his PhD in 1995, went to work with ISIS Innovation and successfully um, facilitated the startup of several companies. He was then poached by 3i, and after several years there, went to work with the NHS Institute for Innovation, overseeing the nine NHS innovation hubs throughout the country. He is now currently the Managing Director of the um, Oxford Biomedical Research Centre and it gives me great pleasure to welcome him to chair tonight's session. Thank you. Thank you and uh, good evening. Um, after uh, John Bell's first lecture, which set the scene for this entire series, Last week we had uh, Lionel Tarasenko's university perspective of uh, technology transfer. Well, tonight we have a practice-based version. We have Oliver uh, Banath here tonight, uh, who is a consultant neurologist, trained in uh, Germany, the UK, and the USA, has worked in Stanford and Chicago, um, and ran the sleep center at the University of California. At the same time, he set up a parallel company for an online grocery shopping system in part because he was so busy uh, at his sleep center, he didn't have time to buy any food. He found out an interesting experience and sold it, and then came back to work at St. George's Hospital at the epilepsy clinic, and gained a passion for um, discussions around the delivery of care and the management of care, which in 2001 led him to McKinsey's, who had just started their healthcare practice and was involved in a lot of the early stage work on foundation trusts and a lot of strategic work, uh, one of his biggest clients was Kings. Now, he then ended up starting a new company, uh, Integrated Health um, Partners, and is here tonight to talk about his war stories, the positives, the negatives, everything that's gone right and everything that's gone wrong. Um, and he is going to talk fluently about how to make a good idea successful. Oliver. Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving me your attention. Um, as uh, Mark said, I will give you war stories. I started two companies, successfully exited one, uh, failed two companies to get off the ground, and I think sort of the mix of it uh, gives me a, a good sort of overview of what may work and what doesn't. I will not give you a short run-through as to how to write a business plan. I will not give you a crash course on corporate finance. You bet you have to learn it yourself if, if you want to do this, but rather than trying to give you pre-cooked solutions, all I can do is really stimulate your own thought because ultimately, even with these handy books, you'll have to think yourself and see whether you can get to a winning solution. Everything that's pre-cooked will not fly. Let me run through a few things and please feel free to interrupt me at any time. I'd like to keep it informal. Also, I've got a thick German accent and tend to speak too fast, so if you can't understand, then just please wave. What makes a good idea? Now, first of all, is, is your good idea really a good idea? 
the most dangerous people that fail in business are the inventors that have a fantastic idea, but only they themselves think it's a good idea, and they miss the point that nobody else in the world thinks it's a good idea. So before you really come out to think whether you want to do something with this bright idea, you have to really make sure that, that it is a good idea. And just a few questions, how do you start thinking about it? How do you actually get this idea? It could be something that happened to you in the shower. It's just an academically great idea. This is the solution to a fa fancy problem. Well, nice, but if it doesn't really help anybody, then nobody will buy it. Did you have the idea because you are struggling with something and you couldn't get it done and finally, ah, there is something how to do it? Well, that might be a better idea to market because there might be other people like, people like yourself that are struggling with the same problem that might be a solution too. So think a little bit about what has driven you to idea in the first place. Is that something that has an external value just other than being interesting? Who is the idea really for? That we have to be very clear about because it then defines what the target audience is. Now in medicine, I work a lot, is it really for the patient? Or is it for the doctors to do their job better? Or is it for the PCT to understand something better? So we have to be very clear of what it is. Another one is, why is it different? Well, if you come up with a new idea, you have to assume that at least five other people had the idea before you. So you have to think about why is this better and why is it different to what exists already exists. Why is it not done before? Same question, basically. And who else is doing it? Again, if you try to do something, three other people already do it. In any startup, that's at least the case. I don't know, it might be more than three. Again, this is not sort of recipe, but if you sort of run it through it and really try to understand what your idea is all about, then you might have a good starting point. And I think many failed entrepreneurs would have been averted if they had thought about it more carefully, what the idea is actually all about. So a good idea is one that other people also think it's a good idea. Otherwise, you don't have anybody to come with you. Second question then is, what's success for your good idea? Now, I will not be able to tell you how to win the Nobel Prize. You're probably better at that than I am. I will not actually also be able to tell you how you can become famous. So like the Foley catheter, you want to have a device named after you to have to immortal. I, that probably I can't tell you neither. I can tell you just how to progress things because you believe in them. And I think that's almost a necessary ingredient to be successful because all obstacles could come your way. You will have to work against good advice and still do it, so you have to believe in it. And I think that's one of them. Actually, that works for me quite a lot. And then another motivation could be you want to come for you from your lab to, uh, to wealth. So I've got something really cool that I want to retire soon on, on my uh, South Sea island, which sounds very selfish, but it's actually quite uh, a good motivation because it makes you really focused on what you want to get out of it. So... Uh, I think many entrepreneurs that have that as a motivation are quite successful because they know what to, what to really hone in on. Very quiet. <laughs> Thanks. You still understand me? I haven't gone too fast yet. All right. Now, my first question after the other ones, of course, is, is being an entrepreneur really for you? If it's about making money, then there are other, other things that you can do making it rich, right? I mean, I, I could have stayed at McKinsey. Um, I left as a junior partner. By, by now, I would be sort of a middle-grade partner. In a few years' time, I would be a director, and that would be quite comfortable. So I would have my single-digit million income per year. If I do that for a few years, what else do I need? So there are easier ways. So don't become an entrepreneur only because you want to make it rich. Do something else. Um, the dangerous person, as I mentioned earlier, is the inventor who thinks he has a good idea and wants to make it happen because has to convert the world and tell them what a good thing it is. That's 
most likely the one that fails because there might not be a market for it. Yes, there are the shining examples of really great innovations, and yes, these entrepreneurs make it particularly rich, Edison being one of them, right? Um, but it's very few. Most inventors have a bright idea that nobody else thinks it's all that great. Or what I think is really the entrepreneur is a person who actually can't help themselves. That's sort of how I feel about it. I you know, walk into the hospital as a consultant and feel, so what on earth am I doing here? I was the head of a department, had my office overlooking the Pacific Ocean in San Francisco. Everybody said, wow, Oliver, now you've you know, achieved what you wanted to do with medical school, and I started getting itchy. Between myself and retirement, there was no hill anymore. I could see it straight through, and that didn't make me happy. So I like being uncomfortable. Um, if you like to be comfortable, don't be an entrepreneur. You have to enjoy the fact that when you get up in the morning, you don't know exactly what you have to do this day, and you're not so quite sure at the end of the day whether it was successful or not, and you're just always uncomfortable because you feel you do it wrong. That's a key ingredient. And you have to be a self-deluded optimist. Chances are you will fail. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like 80% of businesses fail in the first year and the other 80% in the next year. So you're left with then 80% of 80%, whatever, 20 per 20. A tiny fraction of uh, companies that actually make it to anything significant and really big, it's only fewer even than that. So you have to really think that you're smarter than the 95% of people that fail in the same attempt. Uh, so I think that's self-delusion and you're an optimist. If you are that, then I think you're ready to be an entrepreneur. I've never studied Latin. I'm in Oxford here, so I'm a bit shy to say, but sine qua non, that means the condition without there is nothing. And I think that's the number one thing that you really must have. That's a market. So my first four rules of, of uh, setting up a business is you need a market. Somebody wants to buy your stuff. So you need a customer, and they have to be willing to pay for it. And before you write a business plan, you have to be quite sure that there is somebody to pay for it. Just asking your friends and say, would you pay 50 bucks for this, is not good enough. That's actually quite tricky to do. How do you actually prove that there is somebody to pay for it? How many of you have ever watched The Dragon's Den? Those of you who haven't, I would recommend it. It's quite entertaining. And if you watch it a bit more carefully, you can actually quite see a few nice principles. One of the first questions the dragons always ask, so how much of the stuff have you sold so far? If they say none, enthusiasm goes down because it means it's a, the proof of concept hasn't happened yet. If they say I already sold you know, 1,000 units last year, mm -hmm. so make sure you have a customer. Now, it may well be you put an advertisement in the paper and say you offer it. You don't even have the product, but then you just see how many people send you an, an order, and then you say, sorry, we're out of stock. I'll get back to you once you have it again. <laughs> but at least you know how many people would respond. The second, second rule is that you do really need a market. And those of you who still haven't listened, is the fourth, third rule, you do need a market. And if you have a fourth one, then you really must make sure that you really, really do have a market. Other than that, you can forget about it. And my two businesses that didn't get off the ground probably failed on that one. The one was to create uh, options on uh, pharmaceutical drugs that are still in development. Easy to understand the product, but actually I could not get a portfolio of drug drug uh, pieces together that makes a real viable, commercially viable thing. So there was not a market for anybody to buy that. A second company, a similar problem, uh, trying to buy out uh, hospital laboratories in Germany. Uh, again, I had funding already, I have all the rest of it, but really there was no, no way to actually buy the stuff. There was no market for it. So that's the number one mortal sin. You have a great idea, but no market. Now what you need to have or get before you get started is, number one, guess what? a market, 
Number two, you need something that's unique about you. You can either call it a sustainable differentiating advantage, or you can say it a sustainable unique selling proposition, something that's special about your idea or your product or your service. Why is it different from what's already on the market? So it doesn't only have to be unique, but I add a little S there in front, sorry. Sine qua non means without there is nothing. The full thing is conditio sine qua non, but that's too much Latin for me, so I short, shorten it a little bit. But without that, you can forget about the whole thing. So uh, without market, don't do it. And then the other one is you have to have something unique, and that has to be sustainable. So it's very nice if you have got something that's unique now, but if tomorrow everybody can copy it, then the dragon still would not go anywhere. And the third one is you need cash. And you usually need much more than you think. It's all very nice to think that you can do it most of it yourself or with your own savings, but you become your own bottleneck. For proper growth, you need a lot of cash. Usually the income is half what you predict and your cost is twice as much. And if you want to make the whole thing large, you have to do even more. A good exercise for you is to start with a blank sheet of paper and say, with your idea, if you had 50 million pounds, what would you actually do with these 50 million pounds? How, how would they help you make it a bit larger compared to having one million pounds? Probably you can get your idea off the ground with, I don't know what, whatever the idea is, right? 100,000 pounds or something. But what would the additional huge amount of money actually help you do? Either go global, go faster, whatever else it is, but you have an idea about it. And I think then you can do the same exercise, what if you had 200 million pounds? What is it that makes it large? And I think that answer you should ask yourself very quickly because there's not much point having a business idea that's not scalable. So if you've got a few customers and then you've got a business that turns over 100,000 pounds a year, then it's all very nice and good but not worth the effort getting up out of bed in the morning, and for sure the investors will not be very excited. It's much easier to raise 50 million pounds than it is to raise 5 million pounds, by the way. So think about the cash. Once you have got these three, you have a good starting point, and then it is what you have to actually build. You have to build a team. Most entrepreneurs are, ooh, that's my baby, I can do it all. I don't want to share with anybody, and for sure I don't want to share any equity with anybody neither. With that attitude, you don't build a team. You very quickly become your own bottleneck, and guess what? You may be good at one thing. If you're a genius, you're good at two things. If you're even better, you're good at three. And if you're a totally self-deluded entrepreneur, you might be good at four, you think. But guess what? To set up a business, you need many, many more things, and there are typically people that do something better than you. So get them leveraged. Also think about what it looks like once you're out of the starting hole. It is not your job to operate your business. If you, are the, you want to be an owner of the business, you want to have everybody do all the stuff that needs to get done, and ideally you should have to do nothing. You will be busy enough doing nothing. nothing. Number one, you have to motivate people. Number two, you have to be the evangelist about your company and idea around the market. The uh, investors want to talk to you all the time. You will run short of cash. You have to find new investors. The clients want to speak to you. So you are busy doing nothing. If you have a work plan, that has your name on it, you are, you are toast. So don't have anything to do with your own operations. So that means build a team early on and be generous with sharing the equity in that with the team. You're much better off having 20% of a huge pie than zero, than 100% of a nothing pie. You're still better off. So think big, think abundance, don't be stingy about it. And yourself, you should only focus on to doing things that only you can do or you can do much better than anybody else. Other than that, it's not your job. Be quite ruthless about it. 
has to do a lot with um, honesty to yourself. I thought I'm pretty good at Excel. Mm, that's probably true, yes. But when I sort of saw colleagues at McKinsey, there were fingers whisk on the, the keyboards, and I realized if, even if I could do it, uh, I would take 10 times as long. So why should I now start uh, beefing up my Excel skills to a level that I can compete with that person? I just hire that person. I make that person a partner in my company. So for most things, you find somebody who can do it better. So once you have a team, and by the way, if you go to your investor and you come as a single one-man show, that's not particularly credible neither because they recognize that you need to have a team that operates the whole company. So coming to an investor, once you have a team, is the earliest time. Without a team, don't even bother. Then you have to build an organization. So yes, you have to build up whatever it takes to produce your product or your services, whatever it is. And then you need the good old marketing, how to actually get it to the market, and that's a classic four piece. You can read up or go to a course at, uh, at business school to tell you about it. And then you need something that sort of holds internal management together. Again, in all three of them, make sure that you're not on the work plan yourself. And a little one, but people like forgetting that, don't forget to make profits. As long as you've got investor money on, in your bank account, you can easily justify everything with a strategic investment. You hire more people, do whatever, ramp up faster and so on. You rack up costs, uh, but if you forget that income should come at some point, uh, it becomes unpleasant very quickly. Uh, so be very stringent about it right from the beginning. Um, let me tell you just one metric that's really important. It's usually not in your business school corporate finance books. The number one number for me as a, you know, entrepreneur was uh, days, days left to go. That means I've got roughly a burn rate or weeks left to go. A burn rate, how much cash do I use up right now? And if I had the income as predicted or no, no income as it is right now, whatever stage you're in, how many weeks could I get going with it? And if that time scale is shorter than it takes to raise more money or to make sure that you get more income, you better do something about it. So you have to have it long enough. That also tells you a little bit how much money should you raise. So your time left to go should never become shorter. Otherwise, you are with a back against the wall, and then the negotiations will become very unpleasant, and you lose most of your equity. There are a few very deadly sins. The number one is, thou shalt never flog a dead horse. So once you recognize that your business doesn't go anywhere, you don't actually really have a market. You thought you did, but coming to it, you don't. Um, get out of there. There's not much point trying to rescue it, A. You just throw good money after bad. Take the sunk cost, talk to your investor. They're usually happy if you get away with wasting not more money. And you have better things to do with your time. At the time of my first company, 1997, in the internet boom time in Silicon Valley, you were not taken seriously if you didn't have, it hadn't failed at least two companies. So it was just good reputation. And that what, was, what people were looking for, were you honest and radical enough to pull the plug when it was clear that it's not going anywhere? Here in the UK, the mindset was a little bit different. You fail two companies, there must be something wrong. But basically, if you haven't failed a company, then you have never tried. So, um, but do not make that mistake. And I think most people are stuck in that situation, make it perpetually worse. Second one is, thou shalt never neglect your customer, either in getting new customers or looking after existing customers, because if you don't have them, you don't have an income. And that's sort of one of the jobs that you keep on your to-do list, making sure that you uh, communicate with them all the time, and you can't overdo it. 
if you spend less than 100% of your time with a customer, then you probably should do something differently. And one could say that's number one rule, really, but it's a consequence of the other, thou shalt never run out of cash. And that's really your number one job as a business leader of your company. You've got team members, staff, employee, and all the rest of it. You make sure that there's money in the kitty, either by raising more income or raising more cash. But no matter what else you're doing, good things, they all come to nothing if you run out of cash. Are you a particular bright class so that uh, everybody understands it already? No questions so far? Or is it all boring? Good question, because most things you find somebody else in the team who can do it. But there are a few things that fall onto you. And the one is, for example, motivating other team members. The bigger the company, the more you're down the track, the more it is that you are a show, show person. You motivate others. They, they have to believe it. They have to give their extra and, and making, making sort of their company, the company or your concept being something important to them. So if you look at big business leader, Obviously, it takes quite a while to get there, but if you look at them, they probably have got no idea what the company actually does in detail, but they can motivate everybody. Obama becomes a president by motivating everybody. If you look at his speeches, there's relatively little content concrete about what the policy is, but yes, we can, and if you go the right path and you keep on going, you will come to the right place. Okay, you can say that, but make it as compelling as he does, and you become president. So that's something only he can do. Or your investor wants to talk to you. So you can't send a delegate and say, oh, talk to my investor, right? They want to see you. Ultimately, they have invested in you personally. The investor is not so interested in what the product is and the market. Yes, of course, they want to know that. But ultimately, they trust that you will pull the cart out, out of the mud in case you went the wrong way. So they want to see you. Nobody else can do that in the company. Building a team, ultimately, is your decision. Now, at some stage, you have an HR department and that sort of can fill it up. But really, the core team, the senior management of your company, that's for up to you to decide. You have to make sure are these people, A, capable, committed, loyal, have the right chemistry amongst the team. So that's things that only you can really do. If you are in, imagine you are an investment guy, right? You are a banking person. You've got whatever, 200 million in a fund. You want to invest it. Now somebody comes and says, oh, I want 1 million. That's uh, a two-hundredth of what you have to invest. Imagine you would have 200 of those projects going, and then you have to tell your boss, how are they doing? You want to have 20, 10, 20 of that kind of thing that you can put your own attention behind it, understand that it's worth your time, right? So, and there are very few investment houses that have funds that are smaller than that, because otherwise, how much do you think your commission will be? If you get a percent commission out of investment, then it's a million, then you get 10,000 pounds. Uh, uh. 50 million, oh, okay, half million starts getting in the right magnitude. So it's very difficult to raise a little bit of money. There you need friends and family and angels. You cannot go to an institutional investor for less than 5 million, forget it. It will take you as long as raising 50 million and probably is more difficult. So if you can get to the starting point of having the first customer, the Dragon's Den, you can say, yes, I sold 1,000 things last year of this stuff already. And 50 million would help me do this, a much bigger story, then you probably get much more attention than if you come with a small amount of money. Clearly, you are biased because it's your baby, your idea, and the stupid world around you just hasn't caught onto it yet. And if you just hang on in another half a year, then it will turn a corner. 
ask your customers, right? If they, after a long time, have a difficulty seeing what the benefit in it is, maybe you should think about it too. If you can't tell a customer within 30 seconds why it is such an exciting thing, then probably it's a difficult story to tell. But fundamentally, it's quite a lot of honesty, yeah. And it's for an entrepreneur difficult, right? You are a self-deluded optimist to start with. You are in love with your own idea, and you have to act against better advice all the time. So how do you know that all of a sudden you should listen to, to customers that say that's not really, you know. I, I appreciate that's the probably the most difficult one for the entrepreneur. But maybe every morning, am I flogging a dead horse? Mm, no. So that was my theory. Now I want to tell you a bit more about practice. And it becomes now less structured and more chaotic, but there you go. So just practically, if you, want, if you had an idea and you want to get started, the order of going through it, I think, is slightly different. The first point is you, you have to figure out, do you really have a unique selling proposition that's sustainable? You obviously have to compare yourself with the competitors and all the rest of it, but unless you have that, you, you really don't have a, have a product or service to go for. And then the second one is, again, the four important rules. Do you really have a market? That means, is somebody there out there willing to pay money for what you want to sell? And can they buy it? has a bit of to do also with the distribution. So how would you actually address the market? And I say, you can advertise it and say, sorry, we're out of stock, but at least somebody would have placed the order if they only were allowed to. So you can set up your website, right? And when they click on it, purchase now, then you flash it up, but not earlier. Right? So then you know. Um, confirm that you really have a business, and that starts now going down the numbers a little bit. Do you have a business, meaning can this thing make money? Can you charge a price for that product or service that is beyond what you have to pay in order to make it happen? And don't rely too much on scale benefits, because they are only when you are really large. So you have to be really sure that this is economically viable. Don't forget sort of overhead marketing costs. Many people start, mm, it takes me, you know, Costs me 20 pounds to make this thing, and I can sell it to 25. Ah, wonderful, I'm five money in the business. But then you have forgotten marketing costs, setup costs, legislation costs, and compliance with XYZ, and the fire brigade comes and that's not compliant with the following. And there's a long litany of stuff that swallows up more money. So you have to be quite thorough that you really do have a, a proper margin in it. And I think many businesses get out of the starting hole probably too fast, drain their own savings because before they can. In, uh, raise insufficient money only to discover later that actually they have forgotten quite a number of costs or they overestimated how much they can charge for it uh, and they don't really have a business going. So that's really the fundamental economics in it. Number four, to build, pull together a core team. So you really start early. If by that time, after steps one to three, you can't excite anybody else to join you, then you probably have hard stories to sell. Somebody else should be excited to say they take a pay cut compared to what they currently earn because they want equity in your company because they think they make it major together. Um, and that there are particular functions, and what that is obviously depends on what your business is, but basically get two or three people that have some complementary skills to you that are also from a personality slightly different. So some people are better at uh, brooding over problems and finding solutions. If that's what you are, then you need somebody else who can excite people more. Right? Depends what you have. But the team has a complementary set of skills and abilities that you can move forward. So it's a good test. If you can't recruit a team, you're probably on the wrong path. And then the fifth step is find cash. I'll tell you a bit more about that, of course. 
how to write a business plan. Now, I'm not going to you know, try to repeat what the book Business Plans for Dummies or How to Write a Business Plan or whatever the course title here at the business school might be. And I would recommend that you, that you don't start with books. Guess what? I even dare say it in Oxford. There's something like reading too much. At some stage, reading becomes um, intellectual laziness. You just rely on ideas of others, and you think that you penetrate the subject matter by just reading more about it. That's false. Uh, usually, you're better off if you start with a blank sheet of paper, and whatever topic you have, you just bring on paper what you think you know. A, it will show you your own structure, and if you have gaps in it, then you recognize, ooh, I don't know that. Then you go to find out, and I'm sure you remember it afterwards because it was a question you couldn't answer. Or if you find that your assumption was wrong. I bet you can remember that. As a medical student, um, there's a joke. A medical student, you give a telephone book. We have two students, a science student and a medical student, so you give the, both of them a telephone book. And the science student and say, well, you have to learn it by heart. And the science student would say, what for? And the medical student would say, yes, uh, by when? But even in medical school, it doesn't help you go through the litany of 100,000 diseases and learn it all by heart. You will fail having it in your head. But if you start with each disease and say, what do I know about it? Uh, and then figure out where you were wrong or what were your gaps. And you look then in the textbook, then it's much better that you retain it. Same thing here. So don't try with a business, how to set up a business book first and try to get inspiration. You do the inspiration part first yourself. See what you can structure then you're also much more credible, and then you go to the books and see how they can help you get it done. So here, again, it's not sort of the recipe, do this, one, two, three, four, and you're done, but more a stimulation of your own thought. So don't be lazy with your thinking. Number one, explain your product in one sentence. And I don't mean two sentences, a paragraph. I mean one sentence. If you can't tell it what it is that you try to offer in one sentence, and try again, make it, far, make it simpler, do whatever you like, but unless you can say that, don't go any further. Then tell the Dragon's Den, the investor, right away, how much money do you need and how much you will give back by when. So because if you say, if you can lead them to a 30 minutes discussion, then you'd say, oh, I need 500,000 pounds, and you all go, what a waste of time. But if you say, right from the beginning, I need five million, and they say, that's too small for me, but I know a colleague who invests in that size. So you need to see whether they are actually the right category for you. And then you tell him, I pay you back. You give me five million, I pay you back six million in 10 years. Then it goes again like this. Uh, first, I don't have time for six years, and then the return on investment would be ridiculous, so you have just off the scale. So here, of course, you do some homework first. So who is it that you talk with? Is that an investment person or, or organization that invests in the category of size of money that you're after? What time of exit horizon do they have? If it's venture capital, typically sort of between three years, five years maybe, if it's one that's oriented into growth, but then they typically want to find an exit. And how much return you promise them, again, depends a little bit how risky you are, but it should be in the category of 40 to 60% return of investment per year. So you can do the maths, you have to promise them a lot. That will also determine how much of the shares you keep and how much they get. But unless you get into the ballpark, you can stop right there. Right? So do tell them quickly what you want. And then you describe your market. You tell the market size. This is a market of five customers in the UK, and each one is willing to pay a thousand pounds. Great. Yeah. No, you have to say this is a three billion market, uh, global and expanding by the minute. And then this gets exciting. Um, what's the growth rate? So is it a stagnant thing, or is it something actually growing? And um, who is it that's your customer? Be very specific about that. 
So for example, you have a, have a new device for transcutaneous measurement of blood glucose. So are you targeting that at the patient or the doctor or the health insurance company or who is, who is it you're trying to sell to? Then you have to justify your unique selling proposition and tell them what it is, why it is sustainable. And then they also want to know who your competitors are, so the two obviously are linked. To some extent, all of that actually shows that they can take you seriously, because if you are a serious business person, you have to answer to all of those. And it's not necessary that they all write the answers, they will all change while you do your business, but at least you have to gain credibility upfront so that people are willing to invest money into you. Introduce your team. Yes, you have a team, and these are cool people that have experience in whatever you want to do and um, have done many companies before and, um, you know, firecracking. And guess what? You could excite four other people that took a pay cut from their current job and are willing to, to uh, go for it. That is very compelling. By the way, as long as I worked at McKinsey and had my safe income, people wasn't quite sure that I'm serious. So I had to first leave McKinsey and say, now I'm on no income and I better make this work. Then people start taking me more seriously. Then you need to have a little bit of an operational plan, but for a investment um, session, you only have got the uh, highlights. If it's something that you need a factory for, so how will you do it? Will you outsource it or build your own factory so that they see that you have thought about it, how it's done? But usually the people that you talk to are no experts in that and gloss over very quickly. They only want to hear sort of a monotonous noise in the background that you could go endlessly about operation details and then know, oh, guy, this guy has thought about it. Stop here. But just give them the highlights. But you have to sound as if you can spool it through. Then another one often forgotten, how will you grow and when will you exit? So why is this going to be big and how does an investor go out? Now, you may not want to exit if, the, if that company spits out half a million net after tax for you and you're quite happy to keep that going for the rest of your life, but the uh, investor wants to get out. They want to have their, their shares sold. So either you go to the stock exchange so they can then liquidate their shares or you have got somebody who buys you out or somebody else has to have an interest to buy their shares, otherwise they are stuck on the investment and it's not attractive to them. And know your numbers. For the Dragon Den watchers here, you'll know that most of the applicants fall over when the dragons ask them about simple numbers. So what was your profits last year? Hmm, uh, it was roughly, I, don't, I can't really remember. That doesn't go down well, right? Know your numbers. And I'll talk a little bit in the finance section about it. But by the way, I find that this order of things in your business plan usually works very well. Then you need an elevator talk version. You all know what an elevator talk is, right? An elevator, you press the button and then the guy comes in that you need to convince and they say, hi Oliver, how is it going? Tell me all about it. And you've got three stories to, three levels on the elevator to talk to him to, so you've got 30 seconds. And if he leaves you without wanting to hold onto your hand, then you've obviously lost. So you better nail the points fast. That's a good exercise. Really do it. Go to the bathroom, talk to the mirror, and have 30 seconds. Again, the one-sentence description of your product will be very handy. How much cash do you need? How much return by when? So they say, ah, that's mine. And what's unique about it? And why is it that you can do it rather than somebody else? That you have to be able to tell in 30 seconds. Without detail, but at least somebody should say, hmm, this guy has something. Let me talk to them more. And I would really urge you to do that. Unless you can do it, you have a hard time uh, making others believe in it. Then you need a Dragon's Den version. That's basically the executive summary. One page, not four size font or something, normal typewriting size. And that's something that you can basically talk to in two to three minutes. And that's typically sort of a Dragon's Den thing. Explain to them what it is. You can give a bit more detail on some operational details before you've never mentioned 
and um, a little bit more about competitors and progress to date and all the rest of it that you wouldn't have had time in the 30 seconds. But that should be able to do in two to three minutes. And again, if you can't squeeze it on one page, start again. If you need a second page, don't do it. It's a bit like doing your CV or bio. If it takes more than one page, then nobody's going to read it anymore. By the way, these people that you talk to, the investors, have an extremely short attention span. Their meetings in the calendar are hardly ever more longer than 20 minutes. And after five minutes, then they usually get fidgety. They never let you present more than three slides, then they start interrupting you already. So cater to somebody who can't pay attention. And it's not a deficit, it's actually a great asset. Um, if you have a too long attention span, the problem is that people bore you to death and waste your time. Uh, be very rigorous. There's hardly a meeting that I nowadays do that's longer than 20 minutes, because if somebody needs more of my time, then there must be a problem. And either they haven't thought about it themselves first, so why bother me? Uh, or we have a different sessions. We can have a workshop about problem finding. That's okay. But if it's a meeting, a business meeting, that just needs an executive decision. If it can't be sorted out in 20 minutes, then it's a deeper problem. So be very, very stingy with your time. Anybody knows what Parkinson's law is? Okay, well, you know. Any professors of the Said Business School here? Obviously not, because they should be embarrassed, not teaching their students properly. Um, but the Parkinson's law is that the more time you allow a task, the more it will fill it up. So if you give a meeting two hours, guess what? You will fill the whole two hours and you'll still overrun. Give it 20 minutes, then you'll squeeze it in tight. So if you set yourself a time scale, see that you give yourself an unreasonable time expectation. You have to have it done in half an hour. Because only then do you prioritize and say, well, if I really have to do it in half an hour, that's the only time I have, then I better do the important things first and not fluff with other stuff. And that's a good exercise. Even if afterwards you go around the same, whatever you do, write an article or a paper or something and go and flesh it out, but within a half an hour you should have done the skeleton pretty well. So be careful with time. <laughs> I would have to look up in the textbook what he actually said. I have no idea what Parkinson actually said, but it basically means the time that you... Whatever time you allocate to a task, it will fill it up. Now, the numbers, again, I'm not trying to give you a crash course in corporate finance, but a few numbers that are important. Number one, know your income. And that's not sort of now, but have a growth trajectory of the income line and see how it grows and show a downside. So your business case will show, obviously, a growth like this but see what happened if it only went like this. And best get what, guess what, the investors will go with that line and they typically squeeze it down even further. So no, no matter what numbers you come up with in your business plan, investors will not believe them and come up with their own anyway. So the point of the numbers is not that this is the foundation of your deal with them, but it only shows that you're smart enough to figure out these things. Also, investors are often very numbers driven, so you can explain to them a business concept that's all very nice, but unless they see it in a number on an Excel spreadsheet cell, they can't quite grasp it. So as soon as it comes into a table, then they can understand and talk with you about it. It's typically one person in the room who has got more of a conceptual idea and one person who is more the numbers person. You can easily spot them by who gets bored when. And this is the person and they say, ah, now they understand. So again, it's a credibility building exercise. It has nothing to do with your actual business numbers. Costs. Be clear that you understand what's fixed variable costs, understand what your headquarter costs are, and don't overdo it with them. 
In a startup company, you want to obviously have quarters cost very lean, but not too lean. So if you have got no marketing budget, well, how will you sell your stuff? But on the other hand, don't put in 90% of your income for consultancy fees. My wife was, uh, we started now two companies together. Well, we did all our companies together, actually. Um, she was the first entrepreneur in residence for McKinsey after we sold our last company in San Francisco. That was a time when McKinsey woke up to the fact that actually lots of businesses going into the startup world and lost half of their, start, their staff at those days in Silicon Valley doing startups. So they wanted to go into the startup uh, market. How to advise startups? If you're McKinsey, that's about twice as expensive as any other consulting firm. It's very difficult to get into the startup uh, market because even if you give them a discount, most startup companies would have to dedicate more than 120% of their total uh, funding into a McKinsey fee. So if you come with something like that in your business plan, you know, don't do it. So be sure the headquarters are lean, but make sure you have got all the cost items covered. And then show how you can squeeze costs down in case your income doesn't come as predicted. Can you get away with fewer staff? Can you save some costs here and there? So what would you actually do if it came push to shove? If the market had a downturn, Never happens, of course, but what would, what, would, what, what would you do? Would you just go against the wall, or would you have a way of uh, weaseling through and find a cheaper way of doing the job? Create some scenarios. So what's an upside scenario? That obviously is very exciting, and everybody hopes to get there. Have a base case, and have got a downside, and have got an even worse case, and have sort of a null scenario. If it really goes bad, can you still maintain the business at least to get over the next winter and get into 2010 when the market will all pick up again? Identify what funds you need. And that's uh, very helpful. Again, so you have the three financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow. In the cash flow, that tells you how much, bank is actually, how much money is in the bank. That comes back to you how many weeks left to go. Um, there you have to identify by what time you need how much cash injection. And then you also have to say how much do you think you can raise from the bank as a bank loan, how much do you need equity. Investors, if you raise five million or something, will not just give them to you as a whop of money into your bank account, but they probably give you a right for quarterly or half annual drawdowns as long as you achieve certain milestones. But they would like to see over what time they would disperse their five million pounds and when could they pull the plug if they recognize it's a dead horse. Um, so be very clear as to when do you need cash. Tell them what their returns are. You can either show them as an IRR. Anybody knows what an IRR is? The internal rate of return, anybody knows what the net present value is? If not, you have to do a bit of homework. But for small companies, uh, nowadays investors go much more simply. How much of my original investment do you give me back? Twice, three times, four times? IRR, net present value calculations, are all very nice and good for larger companies that have got a stable cash flow and so on. Then they give you useful numbers. In a very young company, slight modifications in the uh, assumptions make your IRR jump from 40% to 120% and it just makes no sense. So then it becomes much more useful if you just tell them I give you three and a half times your money back. In the pocket calculator, if that's over three years, they will calculate back what IRR would it equate to, but at least uh, it's a, bit, a much more simple number to understand. Just sort of as an order of magnitude, if you are going to a venture capitalist, you have got a new product, not really tested, you need five million, the risk is very high, um, early stage investment, then they typically want to see an IRR sort of above 
means 60% income um, in return per year. So if you spool that over three years, then it's typically sort of three, four, five times the initial investment. So you have to be quite ambitious to pay that back. If you go to a, uh, to a private equity company, that means that's more an existing company. Do you want to grow now further? You need 50 million. Then typically the expectation is something like 40%. Um, try to hone in a little bit onto those numbers because if you promise an investor 200% per year return, even though you did your income very conservatively and your cost conservatively and you think, well, that's how great the business is, chances are you missed something, they won't believe you. And if you offer terribly much less, then they don't want to listen either. So see that you hone into those numbers. A bit, bit of goal seek, but I think quite a good exercise. Why do you say 40% um, than take the million? Sure. That's how it technically works in detail, but by the time you start off with them, you basically tell them, I need 5 million, I give you 15 million back. Keep it simple. Then the drawdown will make the cash flow for them more friendly because they wait less long for the last quarter cash and so on, right? It makes their returns better. But don't, do, don't go into these complicated calculations early on. Just keep it very straight. Yeah, they will be appreciating that you recognize it and that the whole thing can't be set up in three months. Uh, but you have to show how you will survive if all of a sudden decision-making takes another six months longer. For example, in IHP, Integrated Health Partners, um, the decision-making of the primary care trust to commission our first pilot took a year longer than anticipated. So I ramped up a team to do it, but then it became clear that mm, there's nothing coming for a while because they go through another loop of iteration of decision-making. So your working capital goes down badly, right? If you are too tightly funded, then you go bankrupt. You have nothing, done nothing wrong. Your product maybe a year ago would still be fantastic, but you just ran out of money, one of the mortal sins. So if you think that's unpredictable as to when the money comes, not only in the amount of cost, but also when, then have a downside scenario. What happens if it takes a half year longer? That will trigger when do you make investment decisions, when do you hire another person in your staff, when you buy a machine or whatever else it is, how long can you go with minimum burn rate and see whether you can drag it out then and what would happen if it takes longer. So that's one of your scenarios, but you need to calculate it in. And you're right. In a scenario I deal with the NHS as a mono, mono, monopolistic customer, guess what? They never pay you on time. Guess what? They never pay you how much they agreed to in the first place. Um, and then there's political uncertainty. All of a sudden, what you do is out of favor. It takes another government change, whatever it is. So you have got huge variables, in particular in the timing when it comes through. And that's for us also the biggest challenge, right? I have to, be, I have to live with the fact that the PCT may pay in three months rather than one month. And I have to, now, if it's something that you get a written assurance from the PCT, you can take it to the bank and they give you a loan. So you don't need to necessarily equity for that. But that's exactly what your business plan finance should highlight, that you A, know about it, and B, uh, would be able to deal with it. <coughs> Identify sensitivities. If you do your big financial models, you'll have 200 assumptions, but only five of those will be really important and make the numbers change. Right? If, you're, if you're slightly wrong on the LIBOR rate next year, well, tough luck, right? It will not jump by 10% up and down, hopefully. But uh, you are less likely to make a substantial error. 
but there will be, depending on what your business is, a few variables that really make a difference. And those, of course, you want to invest all your time in researching, well, can you make it narrow rather than make a wide uncertainty, or have scenarios that highlight what happens in either of these cases. But identify through scenario analysis, through sensitivity analysis, which variables in your model really make it fall over either way. And then make sure your assumptions are well-researched, and that includes the LIBOR rate for next year and all these kind of things, uh, because investors will start picking in and have you thought about that. And they will ask all kinds of little rubbish details, not that they're all that relevant for your business, but they want to know whether you looked into it. And if you just put, ah, LIBOR rate, what is that? Uh, call it 5% amongst friends. Even if the sensitivity shows it doesn't make much difference, if it's 5% or 4%, at least you should know what it was today. You may have to look in the financial time and find it. Uh, so it's more a credibility check. So make sure you have a story to tell about all assumptions. Don't neglect them. They will catch you out. The one thing you cannot afford is lose credibility. They can have a different assumption than you, and then you can haggle with them. Should it be 4% or 5% or whatever else, and you come to an agreement, that's fine. But do not come and, and have a long face and say, oh, I don't know what it is. Very last, a few random tips. Perception is everything, at least at the beginning. We haven't delivered anything yet, so it's all perception. And so avoid the wannabe telltale signs. There are quite a number of them. The one is on your business card that you printed, duly, of course. Then you are the CEO and founder. Tells everybody it's a one-man show, so don't do it. Call yourself the marketing director or something else. Then later it turns out that you are the only person and you are the CEO as, as well, but for different purposes have different cards. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't use your home phone or fax number, or the same number for fax and phone. British Telecom and other telephone providers can give you a whole range of telephone numbers, including 0845 and whatever else they are, for different purposes. They can all be switched forward to your mobile phone. It doesn't matter. It can also then say on your mobile phone where the call comes from, and it identifies it was your marketing department, and you say, hi, Oliver from marketing. Right? So make sure you look a bit bigger. Set yourself up properly. Do have a website. Do have printed business cards. Sorry, it costs some money, but it does look shoddy if you don't. And the website has nowadays become the extension of the business card and make it look good. Don't be too, too, too uh, stingy on that one. And that, as I said, proper internet website and, and uh, telephone lines can do a lot. Have different sections for your contact us. Right? Have three departments. And they all go to your email box, but don't make it uh, uh, oliver at yahoo.com. And then do your homework. Before you meet your investors, first of all, the first two or three investors you select that have no chance in investing in you. So they are low-risk guinea pigs for you. You want to try your 30 seconds talk first. You want to try your two minutes talk. You want to have somebody pick your holes into your spreadsheet without you losing a real opportunity. So find some that you know for sure are the wrong guys. Two or three would be good. And then do your homework. So investigate who they are. For sure know who you are going to meet. The names of them and then you can Google them and find their CVs and all kinds of interesting stuff. So if they come from the same hometown as you, then of course you say, ah, isn't it fantastic? We both come from Geisingen in Germany. What a coincidence. But you also know what they're interested in. If they have invested in similar companies as you, do they know more about the healthcare market than you? So you have to know who they are. Nothing annoys the dragons more than if somebody has no idea who these guys are. Shows disrespect and that you not take it seriously also means do the homework in terms of what questions you anticipate. Again, start with a blank sheet of paper. If you were the dragon, what kind of stuff would you want to know? And you're usually smart enough to come up with pretty much all the questions that they have as well. So do invest in preparation. Now, 
something that sounds a little bit contradictory what I said earlier, try to get as far as possible by yourself. So that means sort of when do you recruit a team and all that, but do not try to go any further. Meaning, have you tested the market yourself? Have you put an advertisement and say, sorry, out of stock, but, and thereby you could show that you know, 150 people would have bought it in the first week. How many things can you actually do on that list before you go to anybody else? Because you will need that to have a credible story. But then don't try to do more. Then you need either cash or a team or so on. But try to get, make the story solid by yourself first. And then, as I mentioned earlier, watch the weeks left to go as a key financial metric. The number one mortal sin is running out of cash. Uh, so you need to have enough weeks left to go to A, find a new investor. Nowadays, there are investors that go bankrupt. And your drawdown schedule that could have given you another 200,000 pounds in two weeks' time will not materialize. What do you do? Go to court. Good luck to you. But if that was what you relied upon, then your company also goes down the drain only because your investor went down. So you need to have then enough money in the bank to go to find an alternative investor. And while fundraising typically used to take about six months on average, nowadays it takes about nine months. So your cash buffer has to be much more solid nowadays, and you can't only rely on income, because guess what? Some of your customers may also go bankrupt in the economic downturn. So the current time is wonderful for entrepreneurs, because it separates the wheat from the chaff. If you can survive right now, then you probably do a few things so well that when the market picks up again, you should be, should be reeling in it, right? I stop here. I've overrun a little bit. I've allowed a few questions in the meantime, but please go ahead. Um, Mark, did you want to start off the session? That's fine. Oliver, thank you very much. Can you give Oliver a round of applause? I just wanted to make a few comments before perhaps a few more questions from, from my own experience. I, I very much enjoyed the uh, slide about what makes an entrepreneur um, because there is a, a level of bloody-mindedness I think is necessary to actually achieve anything in this particular field. Um, and from my perspective, uh, when I was at ISIS helping academics to set up companies, I always thought one of my jobs was to be as negative as possible because if I could put them off, they were never going to survive in front of the lawyers and the money men. Um, you have to be able to take quite hard knocks with these things because it's a very difficult process and a long process as well. Um, I also find it kind of interesting about the uh, NHS as a customer. Um, people talk about the NHS as Europe's largest employer, but it's not. It's quite fractured. It's not even a cooperative. It's an uncooperative most of the time. Uh, and selling into the NHS is actually a very difficult part of what you actually have to do, I think, in, in medical innovation these days, if it is your major market. Um, and that leads me, actually, to really comments about the hinterland. Innovation is successful when you have the right hinterland. Geographically speaking, you have to be, unfortunately, in the right place. I mean, you've been lucky to be in Stanford and California, where there is an innovation hinterland. There's one here. I mean, tonight we have uh, lawyers, we have people from... Uh, ISIS Innovation, the tech transfer company at the University of Oxford, NHS Innovation Southeast. There is a whole group of professionals and experts and experienced people who have done this time and time again um, and who help add value to any prospect that you may wish to spin out inside of a company. And they all know something which I think is hugely important, which is what it's like to fail. I think that's something that the English particularly are not very good at. And to succeed in spin-outs, to succeed in, in, in uh, this uh, area, you have to be prepared to fail and learn what that really means and learn from your mistakes and move on again. So it was a fantastic talk to go through everything you've done. 
So I wanted to ask you one question before I open it back to the floor, which is, having done an online grocery company as well as a healthcare company, were there any parallels between the two? The question would be easier to answer what are the differences because I think the list of similarities is longer. Um, all the principles that I just talked about are exactly the same. Um, I think in healthcare, with the NHS being the client, you have got more problems with uh, delay of decision-making and all the rest of it. So if you sell shoestrings or some other customer good, of course, it's much easier in a, in a sense that you've got a, a simpler market. But um, in both cases, we worked with very large organizations. In the U.S., my, my grocery business was with Safer United States, one of the Fortune 40 companies there. Um, they never worked with a startup company before and never since, I'm sure. Um, so it was the same kind of thing as dealing with the NHS. So other than what the product actually is, I think a lot of the process is cut and paste, and certainly the mindset and the culture is the same. The greatest success is always to actually make the first step and do it. Most good ideas, well, what's Chinese proverb, every long journey starts with the first step or something like that. And I think that's the biggest hurdle. Many people have bright ideas in the shower and the bathtub when it comes to actually doing it and uh, have another plan, have another business discussion, have another plan, have another thinking about it, read something about it, or buy another book. But guess what? Another half year has gone, nothing happened. So if you do make the first step and say, this is what I do, leave your job and all the rest of it, and all of a sudden doing it. And what hit me is when my sort of monthly payroll exceeded $500,000, I started realizing, oops, I'm actually really, my burn rate is pretty big, and I better make something happen. And that, I could say, I've, I've done with angel funding uh, out of a few people in Germany. When I flew out to Germany the evening before, my lawyer asked me, Oliver, what does a term sheet look like? And I said, what term sheet, what's that? So it was a long night of learning um, to get it done. But if, if I could do it with not only what a term sheet is, less than 24 hours before I meet my investors and still have a company then that has a, mon a monthly payroll cost of $500,000, that to me was a sense of, well, then everybody must be able to do it. It's just, it's going. So that to me is sort of the biggest success and the main learning is to just, just go. Biggest failure, I would say, is being flogging a dead horse for too long. Once I recognized that uh, none of the German labs want to sell themselves because somehow they don't believe in capital buyout, they have rather dividend business that their, their son and daughters inherit, I should have pulled back. But it was looked too good. It was just the obvious thing. I had venture capital in my back coming with me to all these meetings trying to invest their money, and it just had to happen somehow. And I probably could have recognized half a year earlier that it's just not going anywhere. Okay, well, Oliver, once again, can I thank you? Can I thank everyone for coming Thanks. tonight? And please go for a drink.